Layovers, your weekly dose of aviation innovation. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome aboard from the flight deck. This is Paul Pavelevichu. Hello, everybody. This is Alex Hunter. We'll be your pilots for this show about the news, the startups, and the technologies defining the modern air travel experience. Our flight time today, an hour and 25 minutes, and we expect an on-time arrival. Coming up on this flight, Don Hunter, our guest, has been around the world from the Royal Air Force to Oman Air, from Cathay Pacific to managing Kaitak Airport. We ask him about the huge operation that was a transfer of AKG, the future of flying in Africa, the lessons in accident readiness we can learn from Malaysian, and the recent Shoreham Air Show disaster. As we reach our cruising altitude, I'm going to turn off the fast seatbelt sign for you. Now, ladies and gentlemen, sit back, relax, and let's turn on those noise-canceling headphones. Flight 22 to Joburg. Hi. Hey, Paul. How's it going? Very good. I see you have a guest with you. We have a guest. You. We are very lucky to have uh, someone who was the uh, very experienced chief uh, officer of airport operations for Oman Air most, most recently. Prior to that, MD, let's do the list. This is quite a long list, so, so get comfortable. Uh, MD of the Nada Philippines, Vice President of Operations for Dunada Dubai, Managing Director of Menzies Macau, General Manager Airport Services for Virgin Atlantic, from 86 to 2004 with Cathay Pacific, including running Kai Tak Airport, and possibly most importantly, my father. <laughs> yeah, I was so, about to say that. <laughs> please welcome my dad, Don Hunter, to uh, Layovers. Thank you for inviting. Thank you for inviting me, Paul and uh, Alex. I'm uh, honored to be here. Uh, plus, uh, thank you, because not only you're here, but you also have been listening to us almost since the beginning. So thank you so much. I hope you very, we are up to your standards of when we talk about aviation. <laughs> Absolutely. No, uh, no, I, I get a great buzz out of it, uh, like uh, many of your other listeners as well. Well, thank you so much. So you, you've been doing all these things. So that's it's going to be a bit of a special episode in terms of we're still going to run with some of the stories that have been happening in the, in the past uh, few weeks. But at the same time, since you're here, we want to, of course, li listen about the stories that you've had in your in your life about. I mean, th for me, the Hong Kong airport transfer must be the one that I'm most fascinated about. But other as well, and probably as well, your perspective and how is the state of flying today and whether that leads us in the future. Uh, so maybe, Alex, do you, do you want to start with that Hong Kong story? Because that's the one actually I really love about, about your dad. Yeah, yeah, I think, I mean, so that was what... Year, embarrassing. But what year was it? That was uh, 1998. 1998. So moving Kai Tak, which we've talked about in the past because I think it's an amazing airport, uh, which was this at the time the single busiest, uh, the world's busiest single airport runway. And not only that, it was a very difficult approach. Um, and I think they finally realized that uh, Hong Kong needed a an airport to support its kind of financial standing in the world. So they they built CLK, but one of the outstanding problems was then how do you turn one airport off and then the other one on without disrupting? <laughs> without so, how did they do it? Well, just backing up a little bit, uh, Hong Kong uh, Kai Tak Airport was uh, designed at maximum capacity to uh, handle thirteen one three million passengers a year, um, and at the close in nineteen ninety eight, it handled thirty one million. So you can see how <laughs> wow. how hugely. Uh, stretched it was. It had a single runway, as you mentioned. Um, it had a curfew from 6.30 in the morning until midnight. 
Uh, so there was a, a, a quite a, a large period of time where no activity took place. Um, and coupled with that, uh, 75% of all passengers who got on and got off an airplane had to do it via bus. So it it wasn't particularly friendly place to uh, uh, to <laughs> operate in and out of. And again, a very difficult approach. Mercifully, in all the years that it uh, operated, there were very few major uh, incidents. And all of those incidents happened in the runway that the that faced out towards the sea. Uh, if there'd been an aircraft uh, accident, God forbid, that uh, happened coming over Kowloon City, which is the most densely populated place on earth, uh, one hates to think what uh, what might have happened. Anyway, that so the air, the airport was was hugely uh, overused, and part of the agreement was that original agreement because Hong Kong was handed back to China in 1997, and the original agreement was that the airport would be completed by that date. But because of the the vast um, uh, technical issues, it wasn't. So the mainland Chinese uh, uh, agreed to an absolute one-year maximum uh, extension. So uh, it was supposed to be the 1st of July, 1998. As it was, it was, I think, the 7th uh, of July. And so we we had all of the, uh, the, 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 the operation literally closed down at midnight. Uh, the last aircraft left uh, Kai Tak just after after midnight, and then the first one came into CLK at six in the morning. So logistically, it was a, a massive operation. So did you have to move? Did you, did you just leave a bunch of stuff at Kai Tak, or was there a bunch of equipment that somehow needed to get? Because it's not they're not close, these airports. A 32 kilometers distance. So, so when you closed it down at midnight, and then the first flight arrived at six, what, what had to happen in that six hours? Well, the, the main thing was that um, the people uh, moving issue was, was the least uh, difficult one. Just instead of going to work at uh, Kai Tak in the morning, you went to work 32 kilometers away, which proposed some administrative problems. But basically, uh, the airport was full on at Kai Tak uh, up until midnight. So all of the ground equipment, if you can imagine, all the pushback tractors, all the main deck loaders, lower deck loaders, baggage trolleys, uh, you name it, had to be sent these 32 kilometers. Now, some of them went by barge uh, through the harbor, um, but the majority went uh, by road. And it was the classic, uh, if it could go right, it did go right. Uh, it was the single largest peacetime movement of, uh, of equipment ever. Wow. Um, wow. And, and it had to happen in that, in that window of uh, about five or six hours. Some equipment had been moved uh, during the previous couple of days, but we were operating to maximum capacity right up until the close. Uh, so um, police were heavily involved, um, the government, uh, road traffic people. Uh, a lot of um, road signs and uh, and lighting had to be taken down because of the of the size of the equipment that was being moved, and uh, and just logistically, where should it go to, and and what should it happen? And it was absolutely bizarre. I stayed overnight at, at Kai Tak Airport that night um, in the airport hotel, which overlooked the ramp and the and the runway, and it was absolutely eerie to to pull the curtains back and, and look down and there was no aircraft there, no equipment, no people, nothing, just almost tumbleweed uh, blowing down the runway. Wow. But, but, but tell me, was the operation, I mean, of, obviously it was successful, but did you have any hiccups on the launch of the new airport at 6 a.m. that morning? It was an absolute disaster. What had happened was, <laughs> um, because of the of the pressure to open it on the, uh, the 1st of July, which slipped a little bit, 
some of the uh, the systems uh, hadn't been properly tried and tested. The flight information display system, the aircraft parking, most notably the baggage system, and it it collapsed. Uh, you know, almost with the arrival of the first uh, wave of aircraft. Um, <laughs> at one point, there were ten thousand bags in a huge pile um, in in the basement on the cargo <laughs> terminal side. The, there were massive hardware and software issues. And, and actually, at one point, you could smell the airport from about 10 kilometers away because of the rotting vegetables and, uh, and stuff that had, had just piled <laughs> up. So I'd be a liar if I said, yeah, it was smooth, apart from a couple of glitches. It was a major uh, problem, and it provoked a government inquiry into what absolutely went wrong. Um, but you know, Hong Kong's really good at getting back on its feet. Uh, the people of Hong Kong are very resilient. And, and within a very short period of time, the things that had gone badly wrong were put right. Uh, cargo flowed through again. But those first six weeks, I would say, uh, nobody got much sleep. <laughs> I, I mean, if, for, for those who are listening who don't know, Hong Kong is still, I think, the largest cargo airport in the world. So that must have been quite something to not having it work from day one. Well, uh, it, you know, yeah, you can imagine the um, angst and the uh, the fury as well of, of the shippers and the, and the people who were uh, putting uh, air cargo through that airport because a lot of people uh, relied on it for, for their living, um, freight forwarders, manufacturers, uh, people needing urgent medical and uh, stuff like that. So the, the the blood pressure of many many people was uh, was high, and as you say, yeah, the largest uh, uh, tonnage of any airport uh, in the world at that point, and I think probably still uh, still now. I think I think it's still now. I think Memphis comes second. Uh, the the other thing is like it's funny that you say about the the, the luggage situation because when. Uh uh, Heathrow opened T5. I think it lasted for more than six weeks that the luggage was not working properly. It was also a disaster and it was not such as a big operation. But that's interesting. You, you, you talk about the story because I, and that's my next question. Do you share these lessons with other airports down in the world? You or other people? Because we know that, for instance, Mexico City will open a new airport and transfer in five years. Istanbul will open its new one in 2018. Uh, of course, it might be also Dubai, which, I mean, might not close its current one, but might move part of the operation in the Al Maktoum one. Of course, the very long story about Berlin, you know, Tegel is, is supposedly moving into a new airport that is never finished. <laughs> I mean, is that is that something that are the lessons learned that you are transferred there? Is there a know-how that you can transfer to other uh, airports, operations in the world? Yeah, I mean, the they call it um, ORAT, Operational Readiness and Transfer. And uh, I was when I was working in Oman, the the new airport there is slated to open quite soon, and. Uh, an ORAT team uh, from Munich Airport, in fact, uh, have been in place, will, will have been in place for four and a half years, um, helping with uh, with that process. So people know that you can't sort of do it on the back of, a, of an envelope, this sort of logistical uh, transfer. And so p- people like, from my certain experience, people like uh, the Hong Kong Airport Authority and the airlines uh, there, certainly Cathay, have always been very forthcoming with um not with telling people what to do, but rather than you know advising people on, you might want to think about this or or or, or whatever. And here are some of the pitfalls that you might uh, you might fall into. Uh, so there's a great sharing of information, and there's now with those airports you mentioned having either opened or opening, there's quite a lot of expertise out there in the marketplace, um, and there are companies like Munich Airport who actually. Uh, make a business out of uh, of helping other airports with with such transitions. 
when you mentioned ORAD, is it an initiative that is done by the IATA or is it something uh, completely private? No, it's uh, ORAD, I think now is, is, is this- um, a fairly generic industry uh, acronym. Oh, it's okay. And, okay. and um, certainly IATA have a, 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 a big uh, uh, group of people who, who can assist in that. But it's, uh, it's kind of, I'm, I'm sure that. Uh, there are many businesses, whether it's a warehouse or whether it's a port or whether it's um, uh, uh, you know major manufacturing thing that's moving from one location to another. They would probably, they may even call it ORAT as well. I don't know. I suppose okay. airlines have, an off, have a vested interest in the success of these transitions. So whatever whatever they can do to share that knowledge is going to probably be beneficial to them in the long run as well. Uh, one success was uh, probably the transfer from the old Doha airport to the new Amid International Airport. I mean, I think it just was just one year ago, and it's been quite successful. I mean, probably the the size of the operation wasn't obviously the size of the operations in uh, in Hong Kong, but it was quite successful. And they just reported the numbers of, of passengers, uh, and I think it rose to almost 30 million. So maybe that's my next question, since we're uh, in the Middle East already. Uh how do you see this whole rise of the, these Middle Eastern careers? Because that must have been something that wasn't the case like 30 years ago. But at the same time, they also kind of copied the the mentality of Cathay and or Hong Kong in terms of having this kind of hub, creating a hub. How do you see all these uh New developments in the in the Middle East. Well, the 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 the, the starter of, of all of them, I suppose, was Emirates. Uh, they started in 1985, and. My previous boss at Oman Air was uh, Peter Hill, was one of the the founders, uh, one of the the four founders of uh, of Emirates back then, um, and and they saw a niche geographically. They're very well positioned. They can capture the traffic, uh, the long haul traffic and the uh, the regional traffic, but certainly the long haul Europe to uh, to Asia, Europe and to Australasia. Also, the um, UAE ruler Sheikh Maktoum. It was quite visionary when he figured that at some point the oil is going to run out and we better have plan B. And plan B was to develop Dubai in particular um, as a, a, a business center and a, and a banking and, and transportation. And uh, Emirates um, started with, I think, 1727. And uh, now they've um, they've done a fantastic job. And, of course, there's been a huge amount in the press uh, about, yeah, well, they're subsidized and they get free fuel and all the rest <laughs> of it, which is, which is simply not true. And I think that debate is going to, to rage on. Emirates, Etihad and Qatar Airways have also one thing going for them as well. They're three very well-run airlines. They, they search globally for the, uh, the best people in the various fields. And yes, there's a lot of rivalry amongst the, the, the Etihad, uh, Qatar and, uh, and Emirates, but they found a niche market. And, uh, and I think that they're taking that argument to the, to the US, particularly when they say one of the arguments has been is, well, look, okay, you're complaining because we're serving too many places in the, in the US, but uh, I don't see, uh, uh, the likes of um, American United and all the rest of it into all parts of Africa and India and and many of the places we go to. So, I, you know, I, I think I really take my hat off uh, to um, those three airlines in particular uh, for finding a finding a niche market and really really developing it well. So you must have seen Dubai Airport at the very beginning, which was basically a hangar or something. Was there was nothing there, right? There was nothing very much there at all, and uh, and even you know it's the world's greatest building site. Uh, you know, even, even as we talk, and uh, uh, some traffic has been um, sent down to uh, 
uh, Dubai World Air- Airport, and but Emirates have still not announced when they're going to make their major transit transition because they've invested so much money already in, in into uh, DXB, but they've added so many terminals and anybody that's been through Dubai at two o'clock in the morning, um, yeah, you just think absolutely y- y- you can't cram any more people in and. You know, they've been quite clever in the way they designed the terminal. And clever, I put in parentheses, because you're virtually forced to squeeze past all the duty-free shops before you can get to your (laughs) gate, which is good for sales and commissions, but not always good for the passenger. But no, it's incredible, the development that they've done. And and Qatar, indeed. Uh, Qatar always has a a very driven managing director who uh, really ran that timetable for the opening of the new airport with a very firm hand. And uh, I went through the old airport a couple of years ago, and I'm very keen to go through the new one, which I haven't yet done. Yeah, the, the old airport actually also was uh, maybe not the the, the the story of Hong Kong, uh, but it was also very crammed at the end because it was not planned to manage as many people. So I haven't been to the through the new one either, so I cannot tell you. No. About, uh, have you, Alex, no, gone through? No, I've never been to Qatar, actually. I'd like to experience both the airport and the airline. I've been Actually, I've, I've only been through the airport. I've never been to Qatar. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's the thing sometimes. There's so many people that fly these Middle Eastern airlines for a reason, because they're very good quality. But more, more often than not, you hear people that have been through either Doha, Abu Dhabi, or, or Dubai, but they've just basically done a layover they've actually never been to the city although of course dubai now is becoming a destination by itself and it's uh that's why i was asking the question about what it was 30 years ago because when you look at the pictures it was like nothing and nowadays it's like completely insane so wow so is it a model because so you work in asia a a lot of of course hong kong and this model of hub and spoke is it's a model that now we hear other countries trying to replicate. So China is obviously an example, and uh, I mean it's too early, but they are. We know that they are thinking of. Uh, I mean, of course, Hong Kong is in China nowadays, but they are thinking of developing other cities with a similar model. So, do you think it's something that we'll see more and more? Do we, will we see? Basically, the question is: Will we see other Emirates? being brought up either, I don't know, in Africa or in, in China? Well, I think I, I think it will be. Uh, the, the major thing with um, somewhere like, well, rather the success of um, Emirates Etihad and Qatar Airways is not taking people to Dubai. It's, it's, it's the big hub and spoke and having it on the ends of those spokes, very large uh, population uh, masses. So there's not really a point in having a a hub and spoke operation in Ethiopia, for example, where the the, the population uh, levels are very small, but Africa is uh, is particularly uh, interesting. They've they've struggled with it. If you go back quite a number of years, there was an airline called Air Afrique, uh, and Air mm-hmm. Afrique was owned by I think it was seven of the West African uh, nations. And underwritten by a lot of uh, French know-how and so on, but uh, ultimately it failed because uh, too many uh, uh, other agenda people borrowing aeroplanes for presidential visits and people not paying their bills <laughs> and uh, um, and and so on. But there have been a couple of attempts uh, in Ghana, for example, to uh, to expand the airlines there, and and uh, Kenya Airways have done a very good job uh, of hubbing and spoking. They had a, a a long relationship with KLM, and some of the KLM management said, "Look, uh, you've got a good." Uh, location at, at Nairobi, you need to suck in traffic, all the trader traffic that goes on to China and uh, and Asia, bring them in from Central Africa, West Africa, 
um, hub them through Nairobi and, and then squirt them out to uh, wh- wherever in Asia we, we can fly to. Now, KQ have had a, a very difficult last uh, 12 months fiscally, but uh, but as a concept, the hub and spoke on on the east coast, hub and spoke on on the west coast uh, is is important. And I think that you know a lot of people have been looking at Africa uh, to to see ways that they can uh, uh, get that level of success that's happened in the Middle East and as you say in China. Actually, the the level if you look at the numbers, I think the projections are that the biggest growth in in, in passenger traffic will be uh, in Latin America first, but Africa will come second in the next 20 years. So it's actually a continent that will grow. And uh, But it's true. I mean, you just mentioned that uh, Kenya Airways had huge losses. Uh, there was this story, I don't know if Alex, you remember, of that person who took an Air Zimbabwe uh, aircraft and he was alone in the plane. Uh, so they were like going for an entire haul with a single passenger, which kind of is a symbolic of maybe the state of very old fashioned traditional airlines in Africa. I reckon uh, if, you, if you took away loyalty program redemption schemes, you would have quite a lot of empty airplanes in the U.S. as well. <laughs> yeah, well, but not, not. I think, I think, the, the, like your father just mentioned, I think the fact that people were using these airlines a bit as uh, private, you know, airlines because I'm, uh, I'm a member of a government. I mean, there was a lot of, of mismanagement for a very long time. It still happens. I think only Ethiopian right now is having a good streak of in terms of uh, uh, making money. They're actually raising their 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 value, but they are also interestingly uh, a lot of new low cost airlines that are being uh, created in Africa. That may be part of the solution for maybe at least intra-Africa tra- travel. Uh, there was, I think, in, in Tanzania, there's one that is backed up by EasyJet. I think it's called FastJet. Yeah. So do you guys think it's also something that we'll see more and more in Africa, these very low-cost models? It's, it definitely seems like it's a very attractive investment market at the moment, that people are looking to, to come in alongside or... Yeah, actually, just alongside our head-to-head with the national carriers who, you know, as all these articles have shown, are really struggling financially. They've got meddling interests and that type of thing. And so you've got people – I'm pretty sure that Tony Fernandez, who is the founder of AirAsia, has got an interest in Africa. Well, have you guys heard of an airline called FlyAfrica.com? I've heard the name. Yeah, I've not looked looked into it. Okay. Well, this is uh, the CEO of FlyAfrica.com is a guy called uh, Adrian Hamilton Manns, who has got a lot of uh, experience and track record in, in low-cost carriers and so on. And, and they've started flying. Uh, you mentioned Zimbabwe. They're flying um, from Zimbabwe to uh, Johannesburg. Uh, they're flying... Um, to Windhoek uh, in Namibia, uh, and they uh, haven't been going for not even a year, I don't think. Uh, they're operating 737s. Uh, they have, a, I think, a genuinely low-cost um, uh, airline mantra, um, and I think you're going to see more and more of those. Part of the problem of doing business in Africa is around traffic rights, um, is around um, uh, just getting business done, uh, wherein uh, it, some some of the African nations' uh, experience in aviation matters and uh, uh, and bilateral agreements and so on is uh, is, is limited, um, and so it it really requires a lot of perseverance. But you know, if you put flyafrica.com at the back of your mind and and you Google it in a year and see how they've done, um, my guess is that they're, they're seeking lots of other. Uh, routes and countries to fly into uh, uh, as we speak. There have been a few failures in South Africa. There are too many low-cost carriers, uh, probably. Um, Nationwide went under, um, and there's a couple of others. And then you've got the dilemma of 
South African Airways, do you have a main uh, carrier? And then you have Mango, which is a low-cost carrier, kind of eating, potentially eating into that market as well. Jury's out. That's, uh, that's another thing that I've always wondered about with, with Africa. It, it seems like in the next 20 years, it's going to be an economic powerhouse is probably a little bit overstating it or a little ambitious, but it's certainly moving in the right direction. The Chinese have definitely seen the potential. They're throwing all kinds of investment and resource at it. And you probably are going to have on the back of that a growing middle class who have the the ability and means to travel. Can the can the can the continent's infrastructure, both on the ground and in the air, and I think you know I've, that skyfaring book, Paul, that you and I have been raving about, Mark Van Vonhoeker's book. He he does allude to, although he doesn't say it out loud as much, that there are concerns with some of the air traffic control infrastructure in some of these places, the the, the quality of the airports and security and facility. Can it keep up with the with the interest and the growth? Well, it, it, it raises a very uh, uh, important point. And in fact, I, I, I taught a course in, in Dubai uh, last year, um, and it was talking to airport managers, not of airlines, uh, but of business aviation, business jets. And Africa is seen by the charterers and the manufacturers of, of business aircraft as the number one growth area in the world. It's the wow. place where um, more uh, business jets are being sold. Uh, there's more demand uh, right throughout. And then you look at some of the uh, uh, of the airports that these aircraft might fly into. And uh, yeah, there are uh, major concerns there. Some airports, some that, and I was involved in a, in a couple of them, like um, the South African ones uh, prior to the 2010 uh, uh, World Cup, uh, have really raised their game. Um, they And they have some fantastic uh, uh, facilities. Some other uh, countries that have been plagued by um civil war, political strife, war, famine, whatever, uh, have lagged way, way, way behind. Um, Nairobi Airport, uh, they've just now opened the, the, the new terminal, not quite in time for the old one to have been burnt down. But uh, uh, <laughs> so they've, they've, they've invested a lot, of, uh, a lot of money in there. But some of these airports are difficult anyway. If you look at Nairobi, if you look at Johannesburg, or they've got a built-in problem, which is they're, they're at 6,000 feet altitude yeah, exactly. anyway. So you, you, there's a problem with the, with the, the payload an aircraft can land with on, on these airports. Yeah. Yeah. And, and take off with, just as importantly. I've taken off yeah. out of Joburg on a hot day, and it feels like you're going to drive to Hong Kong. <laughs> but but at the same time, it's it, this is maybe not solvable unless you move the airport out. Uh, but we'll talk about Joe Burke at the end. But the, the one interesting bit you said is about the landing rights. Is about probably also the lack of competition because in, if if an airline cannot land, uh, cannot have a landing slot in an airport, can you simply cannot either create a low cost airline or also open to competition from other parts of the world. And that's probably part of. What's also keeping the the continent behind is some of the other emerging countries. Not something that we see only in Africa. Something that we see in other smaller uh, Middle Eastern countries, or also in, in South America. And uh, but then again, when you think about it, it's something that it's also a discussion we're seeing in in, in Europe. With you mentioned about the subsidies, we had uh, Amsterdam Airport is now refusing to offer more landing slots to uh, Emirates, for instance. Uh, you also had uh, I mentioned China earlier. I think United is struggling to add landing slots in China. Shanghai, as the same thing because there's no true open sky. So basically, you know, it's uh, the countries can actually decide who, who gets competed, who gets not to compete. So 
don't you think that at the end in for Africa, since we're on that uh, continent, a lot will happen when they actually also open the, the entire thing for competition? Yeah, I I, I do, and uh, part of the problem is that if 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 I'm in country uh, X in in Africa and I. I see an opportunity to fly in, uh, daily into into country Y. Country Y may say, no, I'm not going to let you come because actually I kind of might like to do uh, that as well. So I'm going to block <laughs> you. And, uh, you know, the thing with the Middle East is it is uh, fairly pure open skies. If you want to come in and we've got, uh, uh, you know, a landing slot availability, not uh, not politically, but if it's physically possible to land, then come on in. Um but in some of the uh, uh, countries around the world, not not uniquely Africa, there, there is a bit of de- defensiveness, uh, which uh, which leads to um, that frustration, and ultimately it, it stifles growth. Uh, you know, some of the uh, the, the yields um, flying around uh, Africa are very high. Um, I remember flying from uh, Johannesburg to uh, uh, Maun in Botswana. And the airfare was the same as flying Johannesburg, London. Uh, and wow. from uh, Joburg to, to Maun was uh, two hours, I think, two and a half hours. So, you know, the, the yield is there. It's just having the, the, the willingness to o- open up and, and develop infrastructure. Well, talking about competition, the other thing that you must have seen in your life as working in aviation is that rise of the low cost everywhere. That must have been, that's changed the game completely, no? It, it has. And, and I think for, for the best part, I mean, people uh, often say to me, uh, particularly if I'm uh, overseas, they say, well, you know, are people like EasyJet and Ryanair and so on, are they safe? You know, how can... And I say the one thing that they are is safe because they have a very strong regulator um, and the uh, countries they operate in into have extremely uh, strong requirements for in terms of uh, engineering, flying, um, and, and so on. So absolutely. Could you say the same for Indonesia and places like that? Uh, uh, no, you couldn't. Um, and the- Absolutely. I, I used to live in the Philippines and I was flying some of the local low-cost airlines. I'm not going to mention names here, but honestly, you know, they would not be fit to fly in other countries. No, they, the, 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 I'm not a revenue management uh, guru by any means, but I, I, as I mentioned before, I, I do sometimes struggle with uh, the concept of um, you know a legacy airline having a, a low cost uh, carrier uh, tagged onto it, but it seems it seems in some some areas to work that where it doesn't yet work, and even Michael O'Leary uh, uh, is, has stopped talking uh, about it is low cost long haul um, because uh, as Oasis Airlines in Hong Kong found out uh, they. Bought a couple of ex uh, Singapore Airlines 747s and tried to operate them Hong Kong, London, Gatwick, and Hong Kong, I think, Vancouver. And you, you pay the same for the airplane, you say, pay the same virtually for the crew, you pay the same for the fuel, you pay for the, the same for overflight costs. Um, the only thing you might not is, uh, is, is food, which is such an infinitesimal uh, portion. You pay the same for ground handling. And uh, and so it hasn't been a success. But uh, me, I use low cost all the time because they're convenient. They fly to places I uh, I want, particularly in Europe. And I know that they're they're, they're safe by any anybody's standards. Yeah, they they are. Uh, I think Alex also flies them. I mean, we all fly them. And I think it also it's uh, it democratized travel. I mean, I was looking at I was at my uh, dad's place uh, this past weekend in in Geneva. And uh, we have these old family photo albums. And what they used to do, my parents used to actually put the boarding pass in the album so I could check the price. And wow, wow. nice. 
I mean, flying from it was I think it was a Geneva to Helsinki. There were uh, I found two boarding paths. One was a direct, and another was was through Frankfurt, so, uh, so Lufthansa. The price were like actually at least three times what we pay today, and I'm not that's not even thinking about inflation. So you know what? Nowadays, I'm pretty happy to have EasyJet or Ryanair or all, all the others that we don't even talk about on this show because, like we said with Alex, every time we land in an airport in Europe, we find these new names we've never heard about. <laughs> Or yeah. uh, so it's 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 something that I think will of course also spur competition. But coming back to what I said, I think you have to open the landing the landing slot. So maybe now a small question because you kind of triggered my my curiosity. Uh, how do you think what's the state of flying in Europe? I know you've you're not working with Europe. You work mostly in Asia. But do you think the traditional airlines have a can compete with on one side low cost and in the other side? the Middle Eastern and other uh, um, Hong Kong and Singaporean airlines? I think, uh, I think they've got to compete on a number of levels. Um, the, the, the Asian and Middle Eastern carriers have really raised the game in terms of uh, product and, and customer service and, uh, and modern fleets and, and so on. And uh, within Europe and North America, I, I, I think that um, people expect it. If you get somebody that's uh, traditionally flown on uh, Air France uh, a lot, and they suddenly go on Etihad or or, or Cathay or somebody like that, or, or even in, with, from within the US, you suddenly think, hang on, this is much better. Generally, it's not always, but generally speaking, this is much better. Why can't they do this uh, uh, at home? Um, the the other thing is, uh, in, in terms of, of cost, uh, I remember seeing that the highest unit cost, labor cost uh, of an airline is SAS, and I can't remember the figures, but then right at the other end of the spectrum, you've got some of the uh, of, of the low cost carriers. If you're a low cost carrier, uh, if I fly on a low cost carrier, my expectation of product and customer service is zero. I'm paying not very much. <laughs> I, my expectation is zero. My expectation of safety and on time performance is high. If I'm flying on a, 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 a legacy European or North American carrier, my expectation of both those things is very high. So you'd better deliver. And uh uh, I think uh, quite a few airlines go into denial and say, "Well, we've got the best schedule, and we've got you know we've got a uh, a better seat pitch, and and so on." But if you've got you know grumpy check-in staff, grumpy cabin crew, um, and all the other things that 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 can go wrong, um, then you need to fix it. It essentially comes down to cost, I think. Yeah, people are very press sensitive. You actually told me, you just told my story because I used to fly Air France and long haul a lot. And one day I flew Emirates and I was like, okay. <laughs> so now I, so now I'm just going to fly Emirates. I'm just regretting they're not doing more fifth of well, well, routes. And, uh, and some of these airlines <laughs> miss, opp miss opportunities. I'm not having an Air France bashing uh, session by any manner of means. I know I've got a lot of friends in the, in, in the airline, but uh, I flew uh, on an A380 from Johannesburg to, uh, to Paris uh, last year. Uh, my first time on an A380, okay, I'm in economy. That's absolutely fine. Um, that's what I paid for. That's what I got. Um, but the seat was very uncomfortable. Uh, I mean, it wasn't uh, to do with seat pitch necessarily, um, but the aircraft was four months old. They hadn't, oh. you know, taken the opportunity of saying, here is the, the, the blue ribbon of, of large aircraft now. My uh, in-flight entertainment and that of all of the rows around me didn't work at all. So you just think... Hmm. You know what? What do we do? Uh, what do we do about this? But but um, I think legacy airlines do need to constantly look at uh, what the passenger wants, not what they want to deliver, but what the passenger now expects, having flown on some of these uh, 
um, leading uh, uh, airlines as as voted by people like Skytrax and so on. I, I, I think actually that's uh, like you mentioned. Air I still fly Air France and I still like them long haul. They're okay. Yep. I mean, they're more than okay. But they, they're. I think what you mentioned is the right term. They're in de- denial. Uh, they still think that they have the right model. They still the the small feeder planes all go to Paris and then we fly around the world. It's just that people do not fly the same way to the point that they stifle low cost competition in France because they just just don't allow low cost uh, airlines to fly into Charles de Gaulle and others. So there's a lot of uh, Lufthansa, on the other hand, is trying on its end because they're like now saying, okay, we're going to do the German wings model. So pretty much all our short haul and medium haul will be handled by German wings. And the, the premium long haul flights to compete with, uh, you know, the, the good products of the of the competition will be handled by Lufthansa. Maybe that's a model that will work. I hope for them. Yeah, I think one of the other uh, sort of sensitive uh, areas that where some of these uh, uh, airlines are, uh, are shooting themselves in the foot to a degree is to say, uh, okay, um, some of the unions will say, as, as we saw with uh, with Air France again and, and some of the other ones, um, you can um, start up a low cost carrier if you like, but you're going to have to pay the pilots the same as, uh, you know, a, a long haul. Well, you know, it doesn't quite work like that. Um, no, it doesn't. Absolutely not. And, uh, you know, I think uh, uh, th- that's a, a, a dilemma. There's a place in the business for uh, low-cost carriers. There's a place in the business for um, legacy full-service uh, th- uh, three, four uh, cabin uh, uh, service. So there's a there's a – I would not want to fly – uh, with easy jet type uh, uh, amenities on on a fifteen hour sector, so um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's funny when no. I when I flew down to Geneva a couple of days ago, Paul. I was thinking I flew EasyJet, and they were very very good. They were not on time, um, and it was a bit of a nightmare boarding. And we were on a bus, uh, so actually in retrospect, it was kind of crappy. But what I was thinking on the flight over there was there's got to be room in the European market for someone who's going to go for and I know you know what I'm going to say, a Virgin America model. Probably not with the seatback IFE, more with the Southwest streaming model, but Wi-Fi streaming to your device, iPad, phone, computer, whatever, slightly less um, sell, sell, sell as EasyJet and Ryan are. As, as, as much as EasyJet has improved over the last 10 years, the constant sell of duty-free food, whatever uh, – um, Heathrow Express, Gatwick Express tickets is is annoying. The fact that even on an 11 p.m. departure, they keep the light, the full cabin lights on for the entire thing so that they can sell. It feels like if someone wanted to throw, throw and if you want to give me $100 million, I'll take a whack at it. I'll do it myself. <laughs> I would I would simply say maybe on that route, and I cannot just judge in all routes, but if you look at the London to Geneva route, uh, I don't know how much you, you paid for your ticket on EasyJet. But if you, I fly Swiss just because Swiss is generally only about 10 to 20% more expensive. I mean, again, if you book early enough and I don't have to go to, for instance, Gatwick. So I also basically don't have to spend the money to go there. I just take the tube to Heathrow. I mean, it's the, the price differential is not that high and you have a full service. Of course, there's no IFE, et cetera, et cetera. But so I don't know if there's room actually. That's my question. Yeah. Maybe, and maybe by the time someone figures it out, EasyJet will have offered an in-flight Wi-Fi and you can just have your iPad and stream whatever. I would be amazed if EasyJet didn't roll out Wi-Fi in the next five years. But uh, And not to put words into your mouth, but I know that you're a big believer in the 
Richard Branson paraphrasing, you know, if you if you want to become a millionaire, the fastest way to do it is to be a billionaire and then start an airline. Um, why why is the failure rate so high on new airlines? Is it is it non industry people thinking they can solve the problems they don't understand? Is it- I, I think uh, I, I think there's a lot of that. There's, there's there's some sort of drug in in owning and running an airline. Uh, it's it's people think it's <laughs> or some people think it's glamorous and, and it's glamorous, yeah. And I think uh, I, I can answer that uh, uh, with a. Many years ago, when I was working in San Francisco, running a flight dispatch company, uh, we did some work for a, an airline that had two DC-863s, and they operated them solely from San Francisco uh, to Hawaii and LA to Hawaii. I can't remember. I think it was SFO, but it may have been Oakland. They lasted 11 months uh, and then went bankrupt. Uh, and when the uh, administrators came in uh, to find out why it had gone belly up, leaving a lot of employees out of pocket, a lot of passengers stranded. They worked out that the break-even load factor was 117%. <laughs> uh, and and uh, so basically, it was never going to make money. And I think where airlines uh, often go wrong is they don't put enough value in revenue management, getting buying the very best revenue management talent that you can to understand uh, the, the whole revenue uh, revenue management side. Uh, you know, how to price uh, your product, what it's really going to cost you. I mean, flying from uh, Oasis, I think, uh, uh, and Cathay every, every, every day when they fly from, from Hong Kong to London, for example, the, some of the overflight uh, costs of paying uh, the air traffic control facilities at each of the places, the countries you overfly, I think it's close to 25,000 US dollars per flight one way just in and, and, you know, and if you if you miss out a line item like that or if you say, oh, it'll be all right, we'll be full from day one or uh, oh, ground handling, you know, that uh, that's a no cost item, you know, and all this bit. I think people don't look at the numbers uh, uh, carefully enough or they don't have uh, uh, enough cash flow. They don't have enough money in the bank ahead of time that they can burn uh, mo- yeah, sustain, a, that- sustain, sustain losses at the beginning in order to actually create a business. It's the same in any business, uh, not, uh, but even more exacerbated in an airline. And then, you know, uh, some airlines like, for example, I was reading yesterday about an airline in UK that went bankrupt in the early 80s called Courtline. Uh, and they were very successful. They operated TriStars mainly and and, other, and they went bankrupt uh, for a number of reasons. One was the, the 1977 spike in oil prices. Uh, there were then some civil wars in places that they flew to on a very regular basis. Uh, and then there was a government put a t- sales tax, so a triple whammy, and it just it, it just took them out. That was that was bad luck. Um, yeah. But I think I think the reason so many airlines do uh, do fail is not enough attention to, to detail to the to the revenue side. Uh, we'll, we'll go to to a failure in just a second, but because because one of the the other model has been actually sought after by traditional companies. We've uh, I don't know if you've seen that. I think Delta is launching five different class of fares now. So you have like the absolute no frills, nothing, which is basically the equivalent of a low cost. Etihad themselves have just announced. I received the email I think last week. Have just announced eight different different type of fares. So uh, of course it goes from the economy to like the ultra, you know, crazy first class product that nobody can actually afford. So that's one of the models they're looking into. And interestingly, we, we mentioned many times Malaysian Airlines. Uh, I don't, we don't know the new names, if, if, if they will have a new name. Malaysian Airlines uh, is relaunching. And they've also, they've also talked about creating 
uh, a modular product uh, model, which is basically they're saying you could fly business class, but you could say, okay, I'm going to fly business class, but I don't want to have access to the lounge or I don't want to have our guests like your know, fancy food, even though you just said that food was not, of course, a very a big cost. And they say they create so Malaysian is one of the one of the stories of an airline that that had a very very big issue. So, what's your take of? I mean, of course, it's sad because there was not all of the control being shut down and lost the plane, God knows where. But what's your take on the whole story of Malaysian Airlines? I, I, I think that uh, you know I know Malaysian quite well. Um, a good airline in terms of uh, customer service and uh, and and so on. The problem, part of the problem, perhaps unfairly or, or not, is uh, rather too many fingers in the managed, senior management pie, perhaps sometimes uh, people being involved uh, or, or politics getting in the way of, of running a, a, a good business. Uh, I think generally speaking, the industry would take the view that the old Malaysian um, was grossly overstaffed, way too many people to uh, uh, to, to, to run it. It's sad because, you know, I flew uh, Malaysian two days after 370 disappeared. Um, oh. And everybody, as you would imagine, all the crew were in complete state, state of shock. And I've been flying Malaysian for many, many years. Um, the new CEO the, the, that's uh, that's in there, Christoph Muller, uh, he's got a, a, a huge uh, a task to do. And I'm sure the very first thing he said to the prime minister on Dan is, Leave it alone. Uh, I've got to do this myself. I, you know, if I need to fire 30, 40% of the, of the people, I'm going to have to do it. I, what it looks like, it's, um, uh, it, that may have happened. I think, Alex, you, you've read the article that came out yesterday. Yeah, there's, so they've the new entity, which is called Malaysia Airlines Berhad, which is probably just an operating structure name, not the brand. And the brand. Because yeah. the original airline was called Malaysia Airlines Systems. Um, has got a, an air operator certificate from the Malaysian, uh, their equivalent of the DOT. So they have done what we all thought was going to happen, and they've restructured the the legal entity. And I know that they've kind of cast off the old one to deal with all of the insurance claims and and the debt, yeah, the debt and all of that stuff. And I know, like in, like you mentioned, Christoph Muller's gone in there with a with a fairly substantial axe, and he's. He's trimmed a lot of the surplus. He's he's ratcheted well, they back. Fi- they, 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 they fired people, but at the same time, they seem to be regrouping into a more regional airline, Re- not having yeah. the kind of size that they used to. And there was initially this rumor that they were going to ditch all their A380s. That seems to have been uh, pared back a little bit. I think they're going to hold on to a few of the the flagship routes like, yeah, like KL London. Who's going to buy them anyway? <laughs> what, the 380s? Yeah, no, <laughs> I can, th- that person is called no one. Uh, Don, Don, do you think there's a market for a, for the like refurbished A380? Do you think anyone will buy a secondhand A380? I, I don't think so. But I, you know what I did see yesterday was an article in one of the uh, aviation, uh, uh, I don't know, maybe even Bloomberg, um, saying uh, British Airways, uh, other than getting rid of four of their 747s, uh, are, are hanging on to the rest uh, because they reckon – that uh, by they've still got ten years worth of uh, uh, airframe hours by re-engineering re, uh, a lot of it, um, they can they can keep them flying. No, I don't think anybody's going to be in the market for a used A three eighty. But just just going back to to Malaysian, what, one of the the crazy things that that they uh, that they've had to do um, 
or crazy things that they got rid of is they used to have a route, for example, that went Kuala Lumpur, uh, Johannesburg, Cape Town, Sao Paulo, Paulo back. And it, it with no traffic rights between Joburg and Cape Town. And it used to oh, lose. Oh, what? No. Um, and it used to it, it operate for about six or seven years. And it just hemorrhaged money. And, and nobody got rid of that because I think it was a, a, a political thing. Varig, you'll remember, they had one yeah. that went Tokyo, Hong Kong, Bangkok, Johannesburg, um, and then over, over to, uh, to Rio or somewhere like that. And madness. <laughs> but this is almost like, like you said before, you said having an airline for a, a, pers a, a person is about glamour. Here, it's about a country having prestige. Like we fly in all these countries and we have these crazy routes and we well, are- Well, it, you know, it was the old Pan Am and TWA model, right? You could, fly, you could fly Pan Am from Berlin to, Trip Berlin to Tripoli back in the day. And of course, that became hideously outmoded in the late seventies. But but Varigan, yeah, but yeah, but then again, Pan Am was, uh, if I remember correctly, but Don, please correct me if I'm wrong. Pan Am was forbidden to do domestic, so they had to be very creative in what they could do outside of the U.S. Right? That's right. So they, what Pan Am did, they merged with the national airlines um, way back when. Um, but I think the writing was already uh, on, on the wall. On the wall. It, co it comes back down again to, uh, for example, British Airways used to fly London, Joburg, Durban, um, but no traffic rights within South Africa. And they used to go London, uh, uh, Joburg, um, Cape Town. What they've done is they have a, um, a franchise down there called BA Comair. So they terminate everything in Joburg and passengers then go down on a 737 or, 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 or whatever. It's uh, Singapore still does it. It's really bizarre. They fly Singapore, Joburg, Cape Town with a blinded sector, Joburg, Cape Town, but they, they, they're, they're pretty smart on revenue management. So I think it's, <laughs> I think what Christoph Muller would have done uh, on day one is taken a, Uh, a microscope to all of the routes and all of the uh, profitability, all of the uh, uh, the onflow of, uh, of of revenue from feeder routes, and uh, and just bin the ones that didn't make any sense. Uh, I'll go back to Malaysia in a second, but I just want to have your take on: Do you think the the fifth freedom routes, for instance, I took uh, Milan to uh, New York with Emirates. Uh, so that was great, honestly. I was really relieved to fly them instead of flying one of the other crappy airlines, especially on this route from London to New York is extremely expensive. Um, so do you think we're going to see more and more of these? I, you know what? I don't know. I, th that was a huge political fight to get that fifth freedom. Obviously, yeah. Um, and a lot of people cr uh, cried foul. Um, some people have, uh, have tried to do it, I think, over Scandinavia. And in fact, I think they do do it over Scandinavia. But uh, I think that particular one was a bit of a one-off. And I'm not sure how many, ha how many more countries will allow that sort of fifth freedom activity in their, in their own backyard. Yeah, absolutely. Alex, did you want to ask another question for about the uh, failure of MH to your dad? Yeah, so uh, Paul and I have been kicking this around, um, well, basically since this happened. It's, and I think you, you, you've seen it on the inside, uh, you know, unfortunately, I guess. But what happens in an airline, and I guess to an extent at an airport, when something happens, be it an accident at the airport, and I think you were there for – The Air China plane going off the end of the runway and the, was it the Indonesian Hercules? Yeah. Yeah. That went off the end of the runway. And then uh, a few at, at, uh, at CLK when the Mandarin Airlines MD-11 uh, uh, crashed during a typhoon. What, what happens? Well, I, uh, I, 
one of the things uh, that I do now in my semi-retirement is I teach for IATA, uh, and I'm very pleased and privileged to be able to give something back uh, to the industry. And one of the courses I teach is uh, emergency preparedness uh, for both airlines and for uh, airports. And of course, what happens is when something really, really bad happens is human nature says you freeze. Um, and I take the example uh, of the uh, Asiana aircraft that crashed at San Francisco. Oh, yeah, which we heard Dan talk about. It happened at 11.30 on a Saturday morning. And part of the, the, part of the, 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 the uh, brief that I give, one of the modules is, OK, you are now going to be the station manager for Asiana. Uh, at, at San Francisco on that Saturday morning, you're down at the end of the jet bridge waiting for the thing because somebody says it's on approach. So you you go down with your arrivals agents down to the boarding, uh, down to the uh, jet bridge. And then suddenly you look up and there's a pile of smoke and, and somebody says, you know, we've crashed. Now, I say to the uh, the people in the classroom, what what would you do? And I never get an answer because they you just freeze. And if you haven't got a plan, if you haven't got a, a, a call out uh, idea, now it's Saturday and for sure that the country manager's on the golf course and uh, there's not many too, too many people at work immediately now. Suddenly you've got CNN with a microphone up your nose. You've got the airport authority yelling and screaming. You've got the police. You've got the fire. If you haven't got a plan, if you're not prepared, you are going to fail. And indeed, uh, Asiana will find 100,000 US dollars by the American uh, government for failing to provide adequate help to uh, uh, first help to um, meters and greeters, for example. So uh, yeah, that's a great point. What when you have an incident either that's that's directly or indirectly related to the entity that you're working for, what do you tell people who are waiting to get onto a, that plane, the turnaround, or waiting to meet people, even if it's not a, you know a fatal disaster, if it's the runways blocked or or something like Asiana's happened, where mercifully only two people lost their lives. When do you start going, okay, we put up delayed and then canceled? And when, when do you start? What do you tell them? The, the, the thing about uh, uh, this is you can't do it yourself. The Asiana guy would have been one of three people on duty from Asiana. So you're going to have to use the resources of a lot of other people at the airport, all the way from the chaplain, uh, the, uh, you know, if it, if it requires from that, uh, from the airport authority, from everybody else. So you know, somewhere in your in your plan, you should have all of that written down. What am I going to say and when and who's going to say it? Um, and you better be singing out of the same uh, uh, hymn book, because if you're saying, no, it's, it's, it's nothing very much. And somebody else shows you a picture of a burning airplane on the uh, on the runway. Immediately, you've lost uh, credibility. But the thing that we we say nowadays is you'll remember in, in I, I say to the people on the course in the old days, you know, an aircraft ha has a crash at the end of the runway. What was the very first thing that the airline does? It goes up with a can of paint and paints out the logo on the tail and down the side God, of the yeah. aircraft. Well, how dumb is that? And now in this day and age of um, uh, immediate communication through Twitter and uh, and all the rest of it, you have to tell the truth. You have to tell the yeah. truth quickly uh, and not tell any any fibs because you uh, not only you're going to get caught out, but you could be up for a lot of uh, 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 liability. So, which reminds me, by the way, why, one of the heavy criticisms after the disappearance of MH370, but also after the shutting down of MH17, was a handling of communication. They might have not be told lies, but they were scrambling to say anything 
which were some of it was inventions. And then obviously, then the public was not uh, keen to, you know, to them. So like you said, either you tell the truth, or you I, I guess you just say, we don't know. Yeah, you well, you, we don't know is not a good, uh, not a good I know, but to, what do you say then? Well, for MH370? Yeah, for MH370. The thing with uh, uh, something of that magnitude is you've got to have somebody who is consistently the same person talking. And it's something like MH370, it's got to be the president of the airline or, or and or the country, uh, somebody who's got the ultimate clout. In something like the Asiana one, uh, you're not going to have the president of the company because he's 12, 15 hours flying away. Um, but wh- whoever is speaking to the press, whoever is speaking to uh, meters and greeters or, or, or whatever, has to have had some training uh, in, in, in what to say and how to say it, um, and so that they don't completely crack up. Um, and they're going to have to have the, the right words and to be told, don't fib, don't, don't, you know, don't tell anything other, other than the truth. I mean, you can't say, yeah, well, I'm darn sure it was pilot error by the look at, you know, you can't say that sort of thing. <laughs> no, of <course> not. <laughs> but, but what you can say is, look, there has been a major incident on the, on the runway. It does involve our aircraft. I'm going to give you another briefing in 30 minutes and 29 minutes later, you're giving the, uh, the, the briefing. It's about that consistency of, of message, even if you haven't really got much to tell them because you don't know either. Is it something that basically airlines learn only when it happens? So now the airlines that have had recently a big incident or sadly an accident know how to handle this, but companies who have had a very clean record might not be trained for it. Well, I think that's the reason IATA gets heavily involved in it. I mean, many, I must have uh, instructed um, four, five hundred people over the last couple of years uh, from many airlines, many of whom have, have had a completely trouble-free uh, uh, time, but they recognize, um, you know, they're not going to be told this is what you do in every circumstance. The book would be impossible to write, but here's the infrastructure. So, and I think, I think airlines recognize that their whole reputation and their whole existence sometimes depends on how, how they react to, uh, to an incident. It could be just a small one, you know, something relatively, uh, small that puts the aircraft unserviceable overnight. Okay, well you've got United people. Airlines sleeping in army bases. I think springs to mind immediately. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, I, I think there's an awful lot of tra- well, I know that there's an awful lot of training that does go on behind the scenes in in helping people prepare uh, because the the Don Hunter rule of aircraft accidents is that they always happen at the most inconvenient time, like two o'clock on a Friday uh, Friday morning or, or or a Saturday morning, and and all the, and nobody's around. It's you, uh, you're the airport manager, and and you better be prepared. I was about to ask you: Is there also a role for the airport itself? Because that's the airline. But what about the airport? Yeah, it's it, it's a great accident example that I I, I use happened in uh, in the seventies. Uh, in Sioux City, uh, when a um, DC-10, a United Airlines DC-10, had a, a, a massive uh, engine breakup, and uh, the aircraft crashed in Sioux City, which was the largest aircraft they ever had was 727s, uh, but that was the closest they, they could get. Now, but and they made a documentary of it, um, of, of what actually happened, and just uh, about six months before, the airport, the... Um, uh, hospitals, the city of Sioux City, everybody ran a couple of um, emergency uh, scenarios, uh, live uh, scenarios. There was military on the base as well. The new airport director came in and said, okay, we've done that. That's ticking the box. 
and or at least his staff said, tick in the box, we've done that. And he said, no, it was unsatisfactory. We're going to run it again and again and again and again. They ran it about six or seven times till he was satisfied. A couple of weeks later, what happens? You know, they, they have massive fatalities, but a lot of people were saved because it was all joined up, not just people uh, airside at the airport, um, but the local fire rescue, the police, the hospitals, the hotels, the the chaplains. So all, response to any incident has to involve a huge number of uh, uh, external people. And you've got to exercise that. You've got to write it down. You know, if, if you, for example, you say, as happened in the one Alex mentioned, the Mandarin Airlines one at uh, in Hong Kong, the new airport, um, some of the fire uh, engines went to the wrong crash gate. And wow. uh, only a couple, but uh, the majority uh, got there um, uh, to the right one. But if you hadn't told the external fire brigade where crash gate Bravo is, how would they know? So you, you have to involve everyone. Absolutely. Wow. I mean, it's something that we don't think about more often than because, you know, when we rate an airport, because I'm going to an article, it's more light, <laughs> not about a disaster. When we rate an airport, we're not thinking about how ready they are in case of an incident or of a, usually we just rate them because we have a bad experience, a good experience. And uh, the article I'm mentioning is, I don't know if you guys have seen it, uh, is the uh, press economics has done a different kind of rating. Usually the rating is the sky tracks, you know, like every year we deliver awards to the best airport, usually Singapore, I think like 20 years in a row or something. Uh, actually, Hong Kong is always very good as well, Incheon in Seoul as well. And uh, this was done in a slightly different way, aggregating various opinions from people, reviews online, et cetera, et cetera. And it gave a different, slightly different type of ranking, though the best airport in the world is still Singapore Shanghai. The second is still Incheon in Seoul. The third is still Hong Kong International. But other airports have, have come through. And also they rate the worst airports uh, at the worst, the worst major airports. Because, of course, you can always, when, when somebody says it's the worst airport, everyone has a history of a very small, tiny airport in the middle of nowhere that was really worse. But they only take the, 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 the major ones. Of course, Charles de Gaulle, which is my worst airport, it ranks quite high on the worst list. Uh, have you seen this list, Alex and Don? I, yeah, I, I saw it last night, and I I think there is a lot of bad data in this. I'm going to be controversial. And here's 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 why I think that. You have, I mean, you, like you said, you've got the standard list of these are great airports. Um, almost exclu- I agree with almost all of these. Delhi I've never been to, so I can't, I can't comment on Helsinki is a great airport. KL, obviously fine. But then you go to the worst. And some of these are not major airports. And there are much, much worse airports out there in the world. I mean, Dalaman is the worst airport in the world. No freaking way. Sharm el-Sheikh. And you know, here's my theory about this. And it's literally just an opinion I concocted over the last 30 seconds. These are um, low-cost, high-frequency, bucket-and-spade charter operation airports. The the one, two, three, five, six, yeah. So you have you have you have Luton there, which is in London. Yeah, London and Stansted. let's be. I, I don't know about those those first few, but I know Luton and Stansted are cheap IKEA functional airports, but they're not as bad as you know LA. Okay, Newark's terrible, but. I just I think that this is people shall the goal. I mean, especially because (laughs) especially because the way the methodology for this was based on user reviews. And if you've ever read them, it's people like my fish and chips were too hot. 
Uh, that no, plus where I agree with you is that if we co- go back to the discussion we were having uh, uh, 20 minutes ago about the low cost versus traditional versus probably the Middle Eastern cafe. I mean, obviously in a low cost overall, if you compare with other low cost, it's fair. But if you compare it with uh, a first class on a residence in Etihad, it's unfair. And it's true that uh, Stanson and Luton in, in London, which are two examples close uh, to home for us, Alex and May, are, are ones that are also introducing uh, low cost systems. So you can have to, I think one of the, one of them, and I don't, I don't remember which one even has, you have to pay uh, a fee for uh, kiss and fly. So if you want to stay with your car for five minutes to say goodbye to your relatives or to your friends, I think you have to pay two pounds or something. Uh, so they have this model. It might sound stupid or infuriating to a lot of people, but they admit we are a low cost airport. This is how we make money is like being an easy jet. You want a sandwich, you have to pay for it. So maybe that's where I agree with you. I join you. You cannot compare, you know, sale Incheon with a Luton or, or, or Shamar Sheikh. I mean, the, I, th- I think the other thing is with some of these uh, airports, and I, I, I think you're right about the bucket and spade uh, influence there, but it, it's also to do with people. Uh, I rate, I'm absolutely on the same page as you, Paul, in terms of uh, uh, Charles de Gaulle. Uh, whoever designed it, yeah, exactly. Need, I mean, uh, yeah, everything, everything about that place is just hideous. Um, I think it's 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 you know it's form over function. It's a it's a beautiful the the terminal two E for instance is beautiful in terms of architecture, but mm. they, it's just beautiful in terms of they never thought there would be people. In <laughs> no, That's it, the whole problem with Charles de Gaulle. And 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 uh, terminal one is is it should be in this in, oh, yeah. in a museum or, or something. But um, when I talk about people, if I hate going to uh, LAX. Um, and the reason primarily is I always get into immigration at the same time as the rest of uh, the free world. And by the time I get up to uh, Mr. Grumpy at immigration uh, there, uh, you know, you're already fed up. And then uh, everybody, in- including the, the, the wheelchair pushers, seems to be in a bad mood the entire time. And, and, and that kind of rubs off. And nobody, nobody, I've never found anybody friendly at uh, LAX. Um, and uh, I, I worked for a, a few years at Dulles, but that was a long, long time ago. So I can't, I, I can't comment. But Nairobi Airport, uh, okay, it's, it's just changing now. But I would rate that as one of the worst airports in in the world in terms of facilities and crowded. And uh, I, want, I once needed to fax two sheets of paper from the uh, the airport, and there was a facility there where twenty one US dollars <laughs> per page, you know, and you just think, wow. hang on. See, and that's, I mean, a lot of these I get are bad airports. We've 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 railed on them in past episodes. Madrid is one of the worst laid out airports in the world, but it's too big. I mean, Terminal Four doesn't make sense. You're one one side is in Barcelona, the other side is in Madrid. You have to walk for five hours. Miami, <laughs> I bitched about in a couple of episodes ago. That's a terrible airport. No, uh, one I would agree because I used to live there is in Manila, uh, which in the worst airports by quality ranks at 16. They've gone seen some improvement, but uh, it's you know when it was raining, inter- it was raining within Terminal One because you know it was so old, it was overcrowded, built for five million. Passengers had twenty five at least, so it was. But I mean, you know, again, it's a fun list to read. Uh, I think if they will always, it will be controversial. Yeah. But if they'd weighted or, it by by annual passengers, I think the list would have been a lot more accurate. Um, you'd have then again, Newark, LAX, then again, top Miami. But then again, when you look at the best overall ones, we can pretty much agree with uh, you know Singapore, Incheon, Hong Kong, Zurich. 
you know, they are all fantastic airports that, so it kind of correlates with the awards and other, I mean, I, I do not trust awards because you never know how they run, but yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, they, they kind of correlate with our, with the story. Uh, do you, Don, is there like, do you have a, you just mentioned you, you agree with me with Charles de Gaulle. So what's your favorite airport? If you had to name a favorite airport. I, I, I think I'm with you on, uh, on Changi, uh, although Hong Kong was our home for a long time. Uh, it's just warmer in, in some ways. So it's just uh, slightly more friendlier, um, more a wider range of facilities and, and, and things like that. But I mean, y- you do have um, uh, rags to riches stories, um, you know, and, and certainly uh, Johannesburg would be one that was absolutely hideous uh, and has come <laughs> back. But I think you're going to talk about that a bit later on. But but yeah. I think Changi is, uh, is, is right up there. And, uh, you know, I, th- I like Narita as well uh, for, because it's oh, just yeah. the, um, uh, kind of – funky uh, you know getting Heathrow up to number 16 uh, as the best in, in the world um yeah, yeah maybe, maybe well maybe. honestly honestly uh terminal two is really good i haven't terminal seen it yet five, terminal five is too big but it's okay it's that's a problem with these multi-terminal airports like jfk as well i mean you can have a great experience at, on one terminal and a very worryingly sad at another one so uh but i agree with you it's the, the the layout of 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 this of this airport at Heathrow is is kind of difficult. If you want to just to move from Terminal Four to any of the two others, and you're like just you cannot do it. Um, I'm going to switch a little bit subjects because we're running. Also, uh, we we could talk for hours. I know that one of the other things that uh, you have in your very extended resume is you've been uh, commissioned officer in the Royal Air Force. And you might have heard the, the sad story we had here in the UK, I think it was last week, where there was a, and I'm sorry, guys, because that's your, that's your last name, a hunter jet uh, from the 1950s crashed uh, over a highway, a motorway here in the UK uh, during an um, Air Force uh, show. Have you seen the images? Yeah, well, sad, sadly, we uh, sadly we have. Um, so what do you think about the, I mean, uh, Presumably, we don't have, of course, any insight into why that happened. Uh, I mean, there's been some videos about apparently the jet, uh, when it was uh, taking off, was taking off slower slower than usual. But I mean, besides that, do you think, will there be a backlash against hair shows? What do you... What are your general thoughts? Well, you know, I read an article a couple of days ago. There was a lot of stuff uh, written uh, uh, and often very badly written in, in such wonderful publications as the Daily Mail. And, and, uh, <laughs> but if you drill down to, 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 some, to, to some facts, the fact of the matter is people like air shows. Last year, uh, I think six million people went to air shows around UK. Um, and, oh, wow. and, you know, that's a lot of people. And, and people like to... Um, uh, the, the the spectacle of it they're very he- heavily regulated now um there was a very bad accident in 1952 uh, at farnborough when an aircraft broke up and killed uh, quite a number of people um and it was flying over the crowd and the it disintegrated so that those regulations have have been tightened up and i see that in the uh, immediate uh, uh, aftermath of this hunter crash um, the Civil Aviation uh, Authority and others have, have put on some uh, restrictions. Um, the one thing we will know is we will find out uh, both why it crashed and why it crashed where it did. Uh, the UK Air Accident uh, Air Investigation Board, Accident Investigation Board, and and the CAA are, are very robust at doing reviews of uh, of these. Um, I mean, the aircraft itself is 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 hugely um, 
robust and reliable. And and uh, we have a neighbor here in in, uh, in France uh, who was a hunter pilot. Uh, he actually got shot down in a hunter uh, in, in, in Oman when the civil war was going on. Um, oh. And uh, I asked him the same question, what do you think? And he said, I'm not even going to speculate. All I can say is from what I've read about the pilot, he was extremely uh, uh, experienced both on type and on fast jet and on commercial uh, uh, aircraft. Um, but more than that, I know about as much as anybody, anybody else. And it, it, it's very sad. And I'm sure that there will be some hopefully short-term uh, restrictions because, you know, 11 people, n- not even on the airport, uh, off airport. Yeah, it's, is, is that, that's, that's all tragedy. tragedy. It's, it's just people, bystanders who are just running and, you know, to work or something. Yeah, so, it, 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 it's a, a great shame. And it's not been a great year for, for air shows. Uh, accidents have been a, uh, one in uh, Switzerland, I think, or, or Austria, yep. yes, day before yesterday. Uh, um, there was in Switzerland a day or a few days after after the ones in Shoreham, there was a one in Switzerland where I think two planes cr- collided in the skies. Uh, there was one in Austria, I think, as well. I mean, the, the problem is that, you know, it's just... I'm not going to be uh, too pessimistic, but just these, it's, it happens. I mean, we have to make as, as much as we can to avoid those... Uh, by either regulation, of course, by having, but I, I, most of the time, not even most of the time, all the time, at least in, in Europe and Western countries, you know, the pilots are very experienced. Uh, the the planes have been checked thoroughly. So, you know, incidents happen. I mean, I'm not saying that it's dismissively and we shouldn't do anything about Horham because we will, and I'm sure there will be some inquiry and we will know what happens. But at the end of the day, you cannot completely live in a world where nothing happens ever. No, I mean, the, I, people don't go to an air show to, to, to see an accident, far from it. But they they, yeah. they, they they go there to be entertained. And at the same reason that they go to motor racing, it's, it's fast, it's noisy, it's exciting. And with those things comes a degree of risk. If you if you, nobody's going to go down and uh, spend the weekend looking at an ATM machine in the high street, you know, for their excitement, they're gonna, you know, a lot of people like like that sort of um, uh, buzz, not to see people getting hurt, but to, to be thrilled. And um, sadly, it went wrong. Alex, you, you attend a lot of the, these air shows, right? Yeah, whenever I can. And I, I think um, my immediate thought was I went to the Reno Air Races about uh, nine years ago, which is a staggering spectacle. I mean, it, these are performance airplanes there are a lot of them were of the hawkers of the of the hunters vintage and, and older a lot of them were uh were spitfires and p51s and there was an L, a formula one class which was L, a lot of the l39 the, the czech spock and trainer um and it was incredible to see and it was amazing that nothing ever happened and then about four years ago it did happen and a plane that was racing had a catastrophic mechanical failure and um crashed into the crowd and killed a lot of people. And there was nothing, no one could have predicted that. No one, they could have had the, the, the course, you know, miles away from the crowd. And I think something still would have eventually happened. But does that mean you should stop doing it? No, absolutely not. You you learn, like like my dad said, you you don't fly over the crowd anymore. You, there's, a, there's a safe distance between the flight line and the, and the crowd. And the crowd never uh, is ever flown over and that, and that type of thing. And I think there's, if you, if you consider the number of flights per air show per year over the last 10 years and you look at the accident rate, I it's yeah. microscopic. And, you know, given the risk. Um, and, it, and it doesn't only only happen in these type of air shows. You remember, I think now it's 20 years ago, the Bourget, the Airbus, yeah. which crashed at uh, over the 
the forest at the end of the Bourget, you know, that was also, that was nothing. I mean, it was a professional show like Farnborough here in the UK, but they also crashed. And, you know, and we learned a lot about why did he crash? Why couldn't the pilot go pull over and et cetera, et cetera. So we learned. Uh, not that we are happy that we learned that way, but we learned. Um, any other question, Alex, you want to ask your dad or, or should we move to the airport as you wish? Well, that was going to be my next question. So so we talked about, the, you know, which airport should we feature this this time. And I think uh, we landed on Joburg because you were based there for five, five years. years five yeah. years. So uh, we it's, we haven't done any airport in Africa yet in the 22 shows that we've done. So we thought this was a, a good opportunity to talk about. Uh, would talk about Joburg. I, I will start by saying the first time I went to Johannesburg Airport, uh, <laughs> I'm still scarred by it. Too, <laughs> too, I don't think you get a story going in and out, but I did. When we, we were flying standby, as we did, because we were airline brats, and we were bumped off, I think, eight flights in a row, my brothers and I, trying to get from school back down to, down to, to Cape Town. <laughs> we bumped off eight Johannesburg Cape Towns. We even got onto a, jo- uh, a South African Airways 747 SP, which is cool in and of itself. Uh, and we were pushing back and they started each of the engines up and they started the third engine. And it didn't sound like the other ones <laughs> when it started up. <laughs> and uh, the oil filter caught fire. So there was a really, really nice smell. We all had to get off the airplane pretty quickly. And then when we came back, they were doing major, major renovations on the airport. And it didn't have a roof on, and it was in the they had all this like draping. I don't know if you remember the uh, coming down. It was the middle of the African summer, so it was thirty five degrees, ten thirty at night, and the whole place was in no air conditioning. The whole place was in disarray. So I don't have massively fond memories <laughs> of Johannesburg Airport, OR Tambo. What was it? So it's not always been called OR Tambo. No, uh, in the. Uh, uh, Pre Nelson Mandela, in fact, up, up up until only about eight ten years ago, it was Jan Smuts who was uh, uh, a South African patriot, just as uh, uh, Oliver Tambo is now. And uh, uh, I think people still call it. Uh, um, well, they used to call it Jan Smuts, but in, in fact, like everything else, uh, I mean, um, Beijing uh, was was Peking for the longest time, and people said oh, it'll always Correct. be called Peking, but no, nobody remembers Peking anymore. So, no, it changed about I can't remember, probably eight, eight to ten years ago. Um, but I, I first started going uh, through there regularly in in two thousand, and I, I, I became the chairman of the uh, board of airline representatives, which is basically the airline body that lobbies with government, um, and. It was in the lead up to the 2010 uh, Soccer World Cup and under which, just like the Olympics, uh, the country that is is uh, successful in the bid has to undertake and, and guarantee a lot of infrastructure uh, changes, not just in, in, in uh, facilities and, and uh, uh, stadium, uh, but in all the transport inf- infrastructure. And, and my uh, lion's share of my job for about three years was bullying government to to deliver uh on i wouldn't have be there i left in 2004 and this was six years later um and everybody said it'll never happen this is africa it's just not going to happen it's going to be a complete shambles and so is the world cup well guess what the world cup was a great success and it was uh both uh, the two major airports cape town and johannesburg were completely uh, remodeled. I mean, it was a hideous place when when I first uh, started going there. You'd um, more than likely uh, get off and get onto a bus. You get to immigration, 
and there might be two immigration officers there and you'd st- sit there for hours. It was the uh, mm-hmm. the baggage pilferage uh, airport par excellence in the world. Um, it's not without its problems now, but but uh, they com- they had a vision and uh, – the uh, airports company of South Africa uh, were, were well run and well led, and uh, they realised that this was going to be the first uh, showcase piece for for South Africa. People would see as they came into the country, and uh, it's changed dramatically. The, I was just uh, through there a, uh, a while back, and through Cape Town a couple of months ago. Uh, and both airports, you get into immigration uh, down at walk down a, a modern air-conditioned jet bridge into immigration, nearly all of the immigration uh, booths are um, are manned by people who know what they're doing, well-trained. Uh, baggage is almost always there when you when you walk through. There's great shopping uh, on uh, arrivals and, uh, um, and departures. There's a, a great uh, infrastructure uh, railway that takes you straight from the airport into Santon and up to Pretoria and... Uh, uh, other locations, it's safe. Um, it to, to me, it's a it's a real success because when people talk about building stuff and doing stuff in Africa, they always say it's never going to happen. And and a lot of people have got a lot of experience of it never happening. But you know, here it did. Yeah, it's uh, I, I, just just a parenthesis because you mentioned the the World Cup and the airport. We had Rio as an airport, and Rio Manning of the immigration is still a disaster. So I hope they learn from uh, from Joburg because this is really like they still have the old wooden boxes and not enough of them. Yeah, we mentioned earlier in the show that it was also so a very high altitude airport, which is kind of rare for these for a, a big airport. Right? Yeah, um, I mean, Alex mentioned some interesting takeoffs. I, I always remember. Uh, well, Cathay uh, used to operate 747s uh, uh, during the uh, the South African summer and Airbuses, uh, A340s, uh, during the, um, the the winter. Um, and the A340 on the on the the, the cusp of, uh, of of summer, the the, the performance was um, on on the edge, uh, and you'd watch the temperature <laughs> ticking up. The Joburg's at five thousand seven hundred and sixty feet, I think it is, and and the departure was at thirteen oh five, so right at the hottest time of the day. And you'd watch the temperature ticking up and up and up. And sometimes the aircraft would actually taxi back in and said, "I, I either need the wind to pick up or the temperature to drop because I, I can't oh, wow. go." And um, I can remember one day talking to the pilot, and off he goes down the runway, well within in, in limits, of course. And at the end of one of the r- runways is a golf course, and you could see dust swirls uh, as he as he got airborne. And I sent him a message uh, on what they call ACARS, so where you can send a message, t- t- a teletax message up to the cockpit. And I said. That was uh, just what your, your takeoff, Captain, uh, uh, pretty impressive. And he immediately came back and he said, you should have seen the view from where I was sitting. <laughs> <laughs> so, but it, it's not without its, um, you know, there and, uh, and Nairobi and some of the other high uh, altitude uh, airports are not without their challenges. And from time to time, we'd have to offload cargo to get the aircraft down to uh, uh, within uh, takeoff weight limitations um, in, in, in the heat oh. of the summer. I think as well, I read somewhere now, I don't remember, I think it was, uh, the airport was used because of that reason by a lot of uh, aircraft manufacturers to test their uh, their aircraft with such altitudes, including the Concorde. I think they actually flew the Concorde there to see how it would react with thin air 
on a on a have you ever flown the concorde by the way oh you know when i was in washington i had the opportunity uh, to fly it it came and did a um a flag waving thing and it took people up for a, a three or four hour flight and they said would you like to go and i was in the in the royal air force then and i said uh, yeah i'd love to and then one of my staff who'd done something really really uh, good uh, something outstanding I thought, no, I'm going to give it to you, give my seat to you, because for sure I'll have another opportunity in my lifetime to fly Concord. So he went off and came back and had a fantastic time, and I never did. So <laughs> uh, it was a shame. So I didn't. But they did take Concord down to, to Johannesburg, as they did the A380 and probably every other. Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Every other uh, large production aircraft. I don't. I don't know if there's a regular route by the A380, uh, Alex. I'm not sure, actually, to be honest. Maybe Emirates, actually, yeah, because Emirates, Emirates, Air France, you, Air France, Air France is daily, daily departure. Because you, you sent me, uh, Alex, the other day this uh, tweet by Flat Radar 24, where they were showing, I think, uh, all the A380s that were uh, in the air, and basically more than half were Emirates. Or yeah, it was, right? it was 40 Emirates A380s airborne, 37 everybody else. <laughs> Staggering! <laughs> uh, you gotta love that. I mean, I mean, without Emirates, no A380 will uh, any, ever survive the program. Uh, Alex, uh, any, sorry, I interrupted you within the airport. Any anything else you want to add about the, the airport? Because I've obviously never been to that one, so I have a hard time. No, no, I, I've uh, I haven't been there in about gosh four years. That at last time I was there was with the the Great Tech for Africa conference. Um, but yes, yeah, so I should I should I should pay pay my respects to to, I, to I, I would say to any of your uh, yeah I don't work for the South African Tourist Board but yeah I would say to anybody that's never been to to South Africa is because of the strength of the of the dollar um, euro and pound against the rand the strength of any currency against the rand it makes it an extraordinarily cheap uh, holiday I mean Cape Town was just recently. Uh, uh, announced by Mercer as one of the cheapest cities in the world to to live in uh, and to go, and go and visit. So um, you know, go down there and, and and see it. It won't cost you an arm and a uh, arm and a leg, but it's an incredible country. Wow. So I think we can wrap this one up. Uh, Don, that was great to have you. Honestly, we could have talked. We should do that another time. I know your son comes to visit, to visit. So because you have so many stories and inside, there were so many other questions I had, like I wanted to ask you. But uh, we have also had listeners telling us that when we run over an hour and 30 minutes, they still stop listening. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd rather keep it down now. But it really ready. thank you so much for all your insights. My and, pleasure. And, uh, that, that was really great. Thank you, Don. Sure. Thanks, Alex. And uh, I guess... Alex, I'll see you next week. See you next week. Safe travels. On behalf of layovers and the entire crew, we would like to thank you for joining us on this podcast today. And we're looking forward to seeing you on board again next week. Flight attendants, please prepare for landing. <laughs>